whale of a tale to tell you, lad. The whale of a tale or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon about. The whale of a tale, and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. And have we got a whale of a tale for you. Last time we dove deep into Larry Niven's ring world. It is Niven, right? Not Niven. Ring world. And today we're strapping on all of our BCDs, our regulators, our fins, our best scuba diving dresses to a deep dive back to time when there was no scuba gear and into the underwater world of an early giant, a prophet of sci-fi, Jules Verne. And his 1870 tale, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'm Chris, a two-time commercial fisherman and one-time scuba diver and, of course, sci-fi explorer. I'm joined by a man who has caught a fish or two in his day and told a tale or three. My friend and fellow sci-fi fanatic, Eric, how you doing? Hi, and I really do have a, a, a fish story for you. When I was... 11 years old, we were out on a cabin cruiser going from White Lake into Lake Michigan through a canal that they have. Just enough space for one boat to go out and one boat to come in. And in that 300 meters, we were about in the middle and this fish, it was, it seemed like it was 20 feet long, but it was probably about 10 feet long, jumped out of the water and then back into the water, of course. But all I could see was this this steel-colored skin with these sticky-outy fins, and its face was all pointy. And I, there were about 10 people on the boat, and I said, look at the fish. And no one believe me. And they made fun of me for about a day after that. So many years later, I was thinking about this. I looked it up and it it was a Great Lakes sturgeon. There are not many of them left, but they get up to seven feet tall and 200 pounds. I saw a sturgeon and no one believed me. That's amazing. Yeah. But you, how do you know it's true? How do I know it was a sturgeon? Yeah. It had to. You trust your memory. Yeah. It could it could have been a like a mini Nautilus. No one believed uh, a Ned when he threw his harpoon. And that that boat didn't stay afloat too long. It, it had to hobble off into the distance, leaving those our 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 characters, our main characters behind. Please help keep us afloat by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever galaxy you get to your podcast beamed up from. And please write write and review us if you like stargazing as much as we do. Please share some stars with us. You can find us online at lifedeathsci-fi.com So... It's time to head back in time, not to the 20th century, but to the late 19th century, 150 years ago, a time shortly after the construction of the first submarine that did not rely on manpower. Wait, is that a spoiler? There will be spoilers. The year 1866 was signalized by a remarkable incident a mysterious and puzzling phenomenon which doubtless no one 
has yet forgotten. That's the first line of the book. And I know there have been books written with just first lines of other books, but it's, I think it's a great way to think about what's going to happen because that author was sitting there thinking, how am I going to start this story? Do you think he just wrote those words once or have they been revised over and over again? The year yeah. 1866 was signalized by a remarkable incident, like a newscast, a mysterious, puzzling phenomenon, which doubtless no one has yet forgotten. I'll have to look it up. It was this 19th century style, which is this sort of, H.G. Wells does that too, where it's like this, this storyteller who's looking back and they start with something like this. No one will believe this story I'm about to tell you. It's like throwing out a little hook. For podcasts, there were radio shows, and those guys were masters at that kind of stuff, probably. That's what they didn't view something, they listened to something. And that's exactly what it sounds like. When I read, this was originally serialized. So it wasn't a novel at first. It was published as a series of stories in newspapers. Yes, yes, that's right. I read that too. In every place of great resort, the monster was the fashion. I have to say, as a reader, I, I really like that because monster and fashion aren't two words that are usually put together, but I really liked, I, I liked that because it says something about us. They sang of it in the cafes, ridiculed it in the papers, and represented it on stage. All kinds of stories were circulated regarding it. Vessels the world around have been met by an enormous spindle-shaped thing is it Moby Dick, a massive white whale, a kraken, a mythical sea creature with fearsome tentacles? If any ship went down, it was blamed on this monster, and the public demanded sharply that the seas should, at any price, be relieved from this formidable cetacean, this giant sea mammal. We then meet the teller of this tale our narrator, our protagonist, the narrator has to be the protagonist, right? Dr. Pierre Aronnax, a French professor from the Museum of Paris. He is accompanied by his manservant, a true Flemish boy, he, the narrator says. A 30-year-old boy, not a boy, especially if your servant is only 10 years younger than you, a boy whose only fault is that he only speaks to Aronnax in the third person. The boy's name? Conceal. A name meaning advice. The irony of which Aronnax notes, despite his name meaning advice, he never gives advice, even when asked. So we meet these two just after, having just, in the words of Aronnax, returned from the disagreeable territory of Nebraska. I just love that line. But that gives you a sense of the tone of this protagonist who who seems a lot older than his uh, his age right if he's 40 but we meet them yeah. in new york yeah. preparing for their return trip to france in new york aronnax is approached by the u.s government which seeks his expertise asking him to join the crew of a quote frigate of great speed the abraham lincoln and I was wondering, I don't know if we want to talk about the, the use of Abraham Lincoln as the name of that. I don't know if there's some symbolism there. But, but anyway, a frigate of great speed, the Abraham Lincoln, put in, put in commission to pursue the monster, a request Aronnax readily accepts. 
and aboard the Abraham Lincoln, they meet Harpooner, Canadian Ted Land. Yes, his last name is Land. And spoiler, he'll spend the entirety of the novel longing to set foot back on land, that is, when he isn't looking to fell a whale or spoiler kangaroos or birds. Aronoff describes him as thus, Ned Land was about 40 years of age. He was a tall man, more than six feet high, strongly built, grave and taciturn, occasionally violent and very passionate when contradicted. His person attracted attention, but above all, the boldness of his look, which gave a singular expression to his face. So the Abraham Lincoln battleship spends months in search of a monster, trying, as Aronnax says, 1,000 schemes to catch the monster. The best scheme? Trailing large quantities of bacon in its wake, of course. Yes, that's what they did. And why? Because bacon. What monster doesn't love bacon? Bacon. Bacon. Finally, somewhere northeast of Japan, just when they're about to give up, they see a phosphorescent light, what seems to be an entire reef moving near them. And they begin pursuit of the monster. Ned Land hurls his harpoon at the beast, which turns around toward the battleship, increasing speed. It rams the battleship. Ned Land and Aronox are thrown overboard. Conceal, bless his heart, dies in after his master. As Arano struggles to swim, splashing, Conciel helps him stay afloat. Exhausted, they reach Ted Land, who is standing aboard the beast, which is made of steel, iron. It's a submarine. Just as the submarine begins to submerge, they pound on the hatch and are let in. Inside, they meet some of the crew who do not respond to any language they try. Aronal, Land, and Conceal are thrown into a cell. As they wait in the cell, their hunger grows, and Ned Land, he begins to get very hangry. Aronox says, I felt terrified. Conceal was calm, Ned Land roared. When the door finally opens, Land leaps and holds the steward down, steward down by his throat. It is just in this moment that they hear some words in French. Be quiet, Master Land. And you, Professor, will you be so good as to listen to me? And that's when they meet. A genius who practices extreme social distancing and wears protection when he goes out. The commander introduces himself. It's Captain Nemo, the legend. A legend us readers. In 1866, no one has heard of the guy or his submarine. And this is fiction. As they discuss the conditions under which Nemo will allow them safe but not free passage on his submarine, they cannot leave. Aronox reflects on his meeting of Nemo, regarded him with fear, mingled with interest, as doubtless Oedipus regarded the Sphinx. Oh, And the Greek allusion is appropriate given the root of the name Nemo. Odysseus, not to be confused with Oedipus. So when Odysseus meets the Cyclops in Homer's Odyssey, the Cyclops asks his name. Oedipus says, Udus, which means no one. And in just 
and it just so happens to translate in Latin to Nemo. So Nemo means no one. Nemo and Nautilus wander the seas, say maybe 20,000 leagues of them, wander the seas like Odysseus, losing some crewmen along the way. Fishing line, spoilers. Spoolers, fishermen tell the best dad jokes. Speaking of fishermen and speaking of leagues, I asked my fisherman friend, a real fisherman, someone who's gone up to Alaska every year for his entire life. And when I told him I was reading the book, he said, now we just need to figure out what a league is. So we obviously don't use those today. Enter Wikipedia. The title refers to the distance traveled. The title, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea refers to the distance traveled under the various seas and not to any depth attained. Since 20,000 leagues, 80,000 kilometers is nearly twice the circumference of the earth. The greatest depth reached in the novel is four leagues. This distinction becomes clearer when the book's French title is correctly translated, rendered literally, it should read 20,000 leagues under the sea. Under the seas, not sea. The book employs metric leagues, which are four kilometers each. So a league is four kilometers, which is, I don't need even do the mileage, 1.6 kilometers per mile. So that's a lot of miles. A lot of miles. It's a lot of miles in a submarine. Now, I had to confess, I totally thought this book, I don't know if this is embarrassing or not. I actually knew nothing about this book other than it was super well-known and one of those that have been on my list forever. And I got to confess, I totally thought this book was about going down to a depth of 20,000 leagues, which is clearly impossible, which I knew was impossible. But, and I looked it up, the deepest part of the ocean today is known as Challenger Deep, which I didn't know, although it made me think of a, isn't there a, is there a film with that in its title? Located in the Western part. It sounded familiar to me. Yeah, so the deepest part of the ocean is southwest of Guam, Pacific Ocean. It is 36,200 feet, and I looked this up again, which is 11 kilometers, only 11. That's still pretty deep. Seems super deep, but a far cry from 80,000. But anyway, this was published in 1870, so I was still thinking it could be depth just because it's this great adventure into the depths of the ocean, which kind of wondering if anyone has written that, which has me thinking about a journey to the center of the earth. Yeah, but that's through the earth, right? Yeah, we should definitely read that at some point. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know. I was all the way up until part two thinking this was all about that. He was, that they were at some point going to go deep into the ocean. I guess they could do it later. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. But not as a uh, I don't know if you've ever seen. Did you ever see? I was saying that the I don't know if it's National Geographic. Or the ocean, was it the deep blue sea? Oh, there have been so many. There's a great science fiction one of going so deep. The underwater station is haunted, attacked, and they're on the edge of this cliff that goes even deeper. And I can't remember the name of the story right now. Leviathan? Might be. It might be. Yeah, I should rewatch that. It's a great horror flick. In the mode of uh, Alien, the best ever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I wonder if we're thinking of the same uh, thing there. It's got to be. Well, there's also, is it Prometheus? I think that's the one you're talking about. 
Prometheus. Yeah. I think that's the one with the... Oh, no. Prometheus is alien. What am I saying? Yeah, alien. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Yeah. Anyway, back to Nemo and the Nautilus. Nemo's the name of my dog. I must say a Nemo 50 times a day. I and I didn't that. know. I, I, I don't know if I did, but I had forgotten. I didn't know that Nemo means no one. Poor Nemo now. And uh, that also reminds me of a book by Neil uh, Gaiman, uh, the Graveyard Book. Graveyard Book or Graveyard oh, Story. Yeah. And the main character's name is no one. Is, is, so, is Nemo? Not Nemo. No one, huh? So it could be Nemo in Latin. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. This is where the adventure that begins with Nemo and the Nautilus. Maybe adventure is the right word or the right segue into science fiction genres, subgenres. I was thinking it could be fantasy. It definitely has sci-fi pieces to it. It could be uh, a social commentary, too. And I am astounded at the amount of stories that we've read that have a, a pretty heavy social commentary component to them. Yeah, I would say I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that in this particular book. I don't have to think about why that's the case, but I was really along for the ride. There's a few moments there where I think I remember noting somewhere that when he's in, this is such a cool, the depiction of a, what's sort of that smoking room library where he has all the books and resources. But there's a little note that Aronox makes where there were no political writings whatsoever. And in that moment, I remember thinking like, it's, it's a little, you wonder if there's something a little sinister there or that maybe, and again, not knowing anything about this, not having, I mean, you know, seen a film or anything, I, you know, I wondered if the crew were under some sort of spell or that they, maybe some of them might want to escape. And yet it was almost like they didn't know any better, that they were almost like this nation unto their own without any sort of knowledge of politics anywhere else. I got a, a totally different take on that. I think that the crew had known each other before or they had become friends in their slavery. Oh, and I think they all had those. Yeah, I'm with you. That's for sure. Like, that's what it is. I think they're all kind of mates and, and friends, except for the, there's a clear hierarchy there. But you know, I just thought in that moment when Aronox says, this is early on when he first goes in that library, he first starts exploring. And he just notes oh, yeah? in passing that there were no political books with political writings at all. So at that point in the, oh. in, in the novel, I didn't, I was wondering if, the crew would turn out to, you know, to be almost under, it, it would almost, it would, it would turn out to be like, like the island or something or, or some place where they'd know nothing else. Like maybe he'd reared them or they had no knowledge of the outside world, but clearly, oh. yeah, that's not what you're I got it. Be. Yeah. I just wondered that. Yeah. I like that. That could, yeah, that could be too. Well, I think that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be on the, the sea, the ocean was their island. They could, do their social distancing as much as they wanted. They had built, clearly built a, a, a world, a universe in the seas. In the yeah, I I definitely think this is related to the Star Trek space opera, going places no person has ever been before, and doing it with adventure and discovery, that kind of thing, yeah. and wonder. You're saying it's got a space opera feel to it, but it's not. Uh, obviously, we're not dark in the light. What's that? The dark and the light. I just finished. 
I think it was the Netflix story, the letter to the king was trending and it was uh, these kids wanted to be knights and it was interrupted by, you know, this big, by a war of all of the kingdoms around. And the letter was was a letter that was captured on the way to to a traitor to tell the story of the of what to do and these kids were in charge of getting it to the right person so that the treachery could be stopped and it was a big battle between the light and the dark literally in the end of the show and when authors and and movie makers depict these battles it's i think they're interesting. Did you see the Last Jedi, the Last Jedi movie? Yeah. Where the the battle between the light and the dark in the end, and there was all these beams, and the beams were even different colors. So I think those space opera moments have a lot of commonality in them. Yeah, you have me thinking about Westworld. I don't know if you're watching the latest season, but there's a lot of play with this kind of mirror imagery and black and white, or the man in black. And then Dolores wearing white. Yeah. Hmm. I like that one. Yeah, adventure. Yeah, sci-fi fantasy. I mean, we look at that as fantasy, but... You have steampunk in there. Like the precursor to steampunk, I think that's right on. Especially the uh, description of... uh, When Ned Land made his first description of the boat, he said it had scales on it, and it was all metal, and, and it had fins, and... That's pretty interesting. That works as well. And I haven't read, I think that that's a subgenre. I'm not as really nearly as familiar with at all. Steampunk? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else I've probably looked at that was steampunk, though. There was a great series. One book was Goliath. Even the drawings in this book was like three or 400 pages. And every chapter had two beautifully done pictures about what that chapter was about. And the, it wasn't the author who drew them, but whoever drew them really knew the story well because the details were right there. It was a good book. Those were, that was a good series to... Uh, what was the name again? I will... One of them, there were four books. One of them was Goliath and Behemoth. And I can't remember the other two. Maybe one or two. Uh, we put them in the... But it was about these... Kids who, oh, and it, it loosely followed uh, history too, World War One, and with but with these steampunk machines that like tanks that could walk and balloons that were uh, zeppelins that were made out of real living, like a balloon fish would be mm. a zeppelin, and really interesting. It's I like I actually like steampunk stuff. And especially on anime. Yeah, I just can't think of, I'm trying to think of anything that I've read that, that I, I can't think of any books that I've read that are steampunk. I'm trying to think of some shows. Um, looking at a list here, I'm not, nothing's coming to mind. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is there. I'd have to think about that. Although I've never read it. I've only seen it performed a few times. Yeah, yeah, it's something I'd be interested in. It seems like that a, a possible dystopian future that would be very much steampunk. I could see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. In in our notes here, you have, is Aaron a reliable narrator? Yeah, just something that I just started to think about. There's maybe, it's, at least when I think about the narration here, you've got, it's almost the great Gatsby in a sense. I, I guess maybe not quite to the point where we, we get as much about Nemo's life, but so much of this seems to focus on at least Nemo's world 
and, and Nemo has such a powerful role in, in determining the direction of the Nautilus and where they go and the whole story. He seems to drive the plot, and yet it doesn't seem to be a story about Aranox. But the kind of general rule for narration is that if somebody's telling the story, then it's their story. So, so in The Great Gatsby, it's actually Nick's story. It's not Gatsby's story. But we don't, you know, we often don't think of it that way. So I, I just, I, yeah, I just started to think about that this morning, really. And in, what is Aranox's story here, right? Does he have a, a sort of arc? Does he change? Is he dynamic? Does he, what's his story? Yeah. It's very plot driven. Yeah. Could fill in some of the details, these guys, uh, the mystery around why Nemo does what Nemo does. And then also someone has to be the witness to the wonders, the undersea adventure and exploration that they have on their 20,000 lead. Yeah, he's definitely a witness. That's his testimony. Yeah, do we believe him? I guess all of the description makes it the details and the, he goes into quite, quite a bit of depth of the foods they're eating, the sea life, like the flora and fauna, his journey. I think that, I mean, that makes it more, makes him a little more reliable or credible as a storyteller. He seems, yeah, he's knowledgeable. He has that background. Of course, if he has that background, he could more, he could make up the story more easily. Yeah, that's true. I, yes. And I love the descriptions of the, of the corals and the fish, but they did go on. They were thick with the real names of maybe 10, 15 different kinds of the scientific names of these corals and fish, which I didn't honestly, I, I didn't know. I didn't have a reference for that, but I still like the description because I knew there was something there. Yeah, I felt the same. I, I felt the same. I, I, I drifted at times during some of the descriptions because it was so hard for me to visualize the, to make distinctions between the different fish and, and the, the... Yeah, I, did, I didn't have the uh, context. And you should have had a better context being a diver. I've only, yeah, I mean, I've done that one summer for four trips, you know, the same couple of weeks. And that was... Uh, how long ago? It was 10, 10 years? No, it came that long. Eight years ago. So it, it was what an amazing experience, but not enough to fill in the, or to help me visualize everything that's described in this book. Have you ever been diving? Not diving. It's a lot of snorkeling. So I definitely appreciate that, that whole. Yeah. It's so uh, amazing to be underwater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, that was off for me. It was off near Kopangang in Thailand. And probably the coolest part was there was, we were like, I guess it would be 10, probably four, I guess the deepest I probably was probably about 45 feet. And there was a, there was this kind of tower that was fully beneath the water and almost like, like a chimney. And it was, it, it itself was like probably 30 feet. And, and you could go, when you got to the bottom, you could swim inside of this, this like chimney and then swim up through it. And there was no way to get out until you got to the top. And Ooh, did, did yeah, you do that? And it was about the size. Yeah, I did that. It was about the size of three people, probably my size, three grown men. And uh, you, weren't, you weren't supposed to touch anything, of course. 
but you could just slowly and check out all this different wildlife growing inside of this chimney oh. until you got out from the top. And so cool. Yeah, really amazing. Well, that's the thing. This story, to, if you've had any experience with the ocean or l- water, lakes, streams, it takes you back to the wonder of just being there under the water, looking at all of this stuff or on top of the water, looking into it. It's, it's a different universe. Well, it's got to be. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say, too, is to be under the water and to look up and just see nothing but schools of fish. The light, everything's different under there, and it just looks as alien of a world as, as I've ever experienced on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Life, death, sci-fi. Hmm. You... Yeah, do you think you could handle an all-seafood diet for, for extended lengths of time? That's tough. I think it'd be the bean curd. You can make bean curd taste like any and look like anything. Even bacon bean curd. Would you try it? I'd try most things. Yeah, I just can't. As much as I love sushi and seafood, I can't imagine having... Usually it's still combined with some things. So you're eating it might be raw fish on rice or some kind of combo of, of something to go with the prawns. It's not it's vegetable based and not a, I don't know, all all from the sea. I feel like I would tire of that. Yeah. Yeah. What what in terms of all the places they stopped, which moment do you think? So they go off and they're under they spend these twenty thousand leagues and they crisscross and circumnavigate all of the Earth's oceans. Which moment what was a moment that, 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 I don't know, really resonated with you that really got it excited, your sense of wonder or imagination? When they, I can't remember what's, what the name of the island was. Was it around Borneo when they first could get off the ship? Nemo said, yeah, if you want to go on this island, go ahead. And they were really excited to do this, to get all of the, you know, the stuff you were just talking about so that, that their diet would be different. And all along, I'm thinking, why would Nemo do that and just let you go like that? I think that would be great caution, a great cautionary moment to to be in. And I, I think the natives coming out and how Nemo handled that even was how the tone of the book was. Nemo wasn't concerned. Fine, let them. If they want to come on the boat, that's fine and how that that all happened i really got into that park and i can't help it i haven't seen the movie for decades but it brought me back to the moment in the disney movie where where that happened and i read carefully to see how the movie and the and the story were different i like the story better it should be that way okay that makes sense yeah it looks like there's another 1916 version you can watch for free on youtube no idea it's probably more accurate in some ways i'm guessing yeah, I don't know. I only watched like last night. It just, I was curious. I put on, like I said, I watched the first few minutes of the 1954 uh, with <laughs> Kirk Douglas. Too funny. I don't know. Those guys breaking his song. It reminded, reminded me of uh, Paint Your Wagon, Clint Eastwood. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's like, too funny. Yes. Yeah, what a riot. I'll, I'll probably go back and watch it at some point just for kicks. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that scene was pretty amazing, too. I would have been horrified at the idea of them shooting and killing kangaroos if I hadn't been to Australia and 
at this point and eaten stir-fried kangaroo before. Australians being the only nationality that eats their national their national animal. They eat the kangaroo. I, I don't know. Bald eagle? Well, you're not going to eat a bald eagle. But we eat turkeys. We could breed bald eagles and then we could eat our national bird for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Village, yeah. <laughs> like Australian. We want to keep them company. All right, next book. Next book. So in my translation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Victoria Blake writes a wonderful introduction. Uh, quote, this is only part of her introduction. Actually, this is the last part of her introduction. Nemo stands as a dark image of human vengeance. He shows us the dangers of fury, the negative potential of technology let loose on humankind. The book you hold in your hands is Verne's masterpiece, because even while he takes us to the limits of the human imagination, Nemo takes us to the depths of the human heart. Be safe. I just didn't see it like that, really. Really, you were on the ride. You, that's what you said. You're on the adventure. You're on the ride. And that's fine. There's some, there's some places where, I don't know, we might have to talk a bit more now or, or later. But I, okay, so it says, the potential of technology let loose on humankind. We get the sense that he's, at least he says, that he's collecting this, this money, right? That he's got this, this kind of gold and some riches and things that he's able to redistribute so he has so nemo takes issue with some aspects of humanity that he doesn't qu yeah. quite get into but he's a misanthrope he's that's clear i got the sense that he was maybe some of that money was there was more of a batman-ish element to it or a robin hood kind of thing where he was taking some of this money and then or these riches and they were maybe being redistributed in some way to 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 re to maybe re reshape a society in a way that was less more fair for some people what does he do that's that gives us into the depths of the humor what, what's something that's so dark about his what are his most dark moments in the book in the end he doesn't share his technology with the rest of the world because he thinks the rest of the world's not ready for it who is nemo who is Nemo? A podcast about no one. Nemo, a character analysis. We we could put uh, a bunch of these sci-fi characters Ooh. in kind of a fantasy league. Yeah, greatest villains series. Put them in the settings of different books, like Annihilation. We could put Nemo in Annihilation and see what happens. And... Huh. Well, that's really far out. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> The Nautilus pulls up to the huge whale with all the different eyes sticking out of it, the human eyes sticking out of it. There's uh, some parallels in this idea of monsters, I think is worth a little more explanation to exploration. Who's the monster in some of these stories? You know, is Nemo the monster? What about these, the, the squid? And, you know, I, I think he's got a bit heroic in that moment. I don't know. I feel like there's a few of the things I didn't dig too deep online. And I guess I didn't find anything that deep very quickly, but I didn't do, I didn't do, I didn't look online much. I kind of clicked the Wikipedia. I don't even know if I looked anywhere else actually. And I, you know, I didn't, I just, what I saw briefly in passing here, there was that he's seen as this darker figure, but I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like he was that dark here. I don't know. I, I, not, not dark enough. What is he? 
Hmm. Yeah, he, I think he, I'm he getting does, into that part right now. Yeah, he destroys a a, a ship, right? At some point, he, he kind of brutally destroys these. I meant to look up that up. It, it's in the whale family. Some predatory, like a kind of got a predatory group that's going to attack this school of whales in a uh, yeah. Oh, these poops, I think they're called. No, that wasn't it. They're they're that's a type of squid. It's a cachalots. Cachalots. I think that's I think that's an umbrella term for some whales. But there's a moment. But you got to. Oh, I didn't realize. I realized that you hadn't, you hadn't finished your rereading of it. We should revisit this once you once you've done that. Maybe as in in part of a. What do you think of the idea of a character analysis of Nemo, like villains of sci-fi or something? Or is this is this ongoing series where we where there's a character we come across and we feel like we want to spend a little more time breaking down? We could do that. I love that idea. I, I love that idea. Yeah, Nemo is such a, a cult figure. I feel like there's some video game I was playing that was like uh, when I was a kid, Nintendo, that was about uh, Nemo. I think that was Little Nemo, I think it was called. Little Nemo's Pizza. I, I, yeah, I was going to say with the Twitter thing is I thought it'd be cool to have a feed of lines of phrases or sentences that we're really enjoying as we read the work. I marked one that I liked because of the language of the time period and the translation we shall penetrate into the that atlantic which we do not yet know ah friend ned you are getting tired of this journey under the sea you are surfeit with the incessantly varying spectacle of submarine wonders for my part i shall be sorry to see the end of a voyage which it is given to so few men to make I really, I had to read that a, a, a few times, which it is given to so few men to make. Right. It's a yeah. nice way to say that, but we would never say that. No, it's got an older feel, I mean, 19th century feel in the first place. So that's part of it. And then, it, yeah, then, and then it's translated, right? Yeah, there's some interesting lines like that. I think it fits with the sort of the tone with Aranox as well. I wrote down a few lines like, half stretched upon a divan in the library. I was suffocating. <laughs> it's just ages here. I feel like I always feel like there's so many things we didn't get to. Mortal dread hangs over Aeronauts. Yeah, come then, sir. We will put on our dry, our diving dress. The Twitter thing with the lines, I wasn't thinking like best lines, but just as you're reading, I've done that in the past with some students and stuff where, where it was just like I think I originally saw that on a Goodreads. I was thinking the same thing. Goodreads does something like that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome, Eric. Hey, great to hear your voice. I'm glad you and yours are are uh, doing well there under quarantine. And look, Likewise. Look forward Stay to, safe. Uh, yeah, talking soon. I, I totally look forward to this podcasting that we have. It's uh, been a blast. Yeah. And I think it's just going to get better. Yep, yep. Awesome. I agree. Okay. Cool. All right. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Bye.